Welcome to Here You Are, Season 3. I'm your host, Tom Fleischman. And today, to kick us off, we have in the studio, Eleanor Leno. Eleanor, say hello. Hi, guys. Welcome. Okay, Eleanor. So I am new to Rochester. I've only been here three years. You, on the other hand, grew up here. And uh, one thing I've learned being new to Rochester is uh, don't talk about the fast ferry. For sure. It's kind of a taboo topic. Growing up in this area, I came here in 2006, so it was right after the ferry failed. And I have some super vivid memories of not only my parents, but random elementary school teachers discussing this ferry and how it had taken their tax dollars and all this crazy stuff happened. And uh, it's kind of a meme. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned fast ferry and people will just lose it. So wait. Oh, yeah. So if you were to explain the Rochester Ferry to somebody not from Rochester, how would you do it? Well, do you know The Simpsons? Yeah, of course. Who doesn't know The Simpsons? Yeah, I love The Simpsons. Um, every day after school, I would come home and watch The Simpsons with my dad. And uh, watching The Simpsons in 2006, as this whole Fast Ferry thing was unfolding, I kind of started to notice some similarities and parallels between the episode Marge versus the Monorail and the Fast Ferry. Oh, yeah. Wait, what? Uh, it's been a while. What what happens in that episode? So it's, it's a really great one. But basically, Springfield is in shambles, as it always is. And this man, this huckster con man named Lyle Landley, comes through noticing that Springfield has a lot of money to spend on some sort of public project. You know, a town with money is a little like the mule with a spinning wheel. No one knows how he got it, and danged if he knows how to use it. And he brings this idea of a monorail. People are very skeptical at first. They have a lot of criticism. But he is a very, um, what's the word, confident man. And he manages to convince them through song. Monorail. Like the music man. Exactly, like the music Monorail. man. Monorail. I hear those things are awfully loud. It glides as softly as a cloud. Is there a chance the track could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. What about us Brendan slobs? You'll be given cushy jobs. Were you sent here by the devil? But no, good, is that what happened in Rochester? Is that the best way to understand it? This con man came to town and took the city for millions of dollars and left it with nothing? Well, that's the way that we like to think about it now in 2019 as people of Rochester. But in reality, what actually happened was quite different. And the one way to really know how it actually happened is through one man, Bill Johnson. Our story begins in November of 2019 in Retner Studios at the University of Rochester. Well, my formal name is William A. Johnson, Jr. I am known by many people as Bill, and I am a 47-year resident of the city of Rochester, native-born Virginian, came here to work and stayed. Most importantly of all, Johnson was the mayor of Rochester during the ferry's rise and fall. So I'm a graduate of Howard University in Washington, D.C. I earned two degrees there in political science in the mid-60s. I left graduate school and moved to Flint, Michigan, when Flint was a prosperous city in uh, 1967. I then went to work for the local Urban League affiliate in Flint, which was at that time one of the largest in the country. Became the deputy director, and after about 20 months on that job, I successfully interviewed for the head job here in Rochester, and I moved to Rochester in December of 72 to begin a 21-year tenure as the CEO of the Urban League of Rochester. When Johnson was elected mayor in November of 1993, 
He was the first Urban League president to become the mayor of the city he had worked over. And when Johnson was elected the first black mayor of Rochester with a 78% majority vote, it was beyond surprising. It was a feat. Not only did Johnson run his own campaign, it was his first time running for any sort of political office. Here are some of Johnson's thoughts on the campaign and election. It was highly competitive. There were eight other Democrats who announced for that vacant position. By the time we got to primary day, we'd gotten down to five. I was not the presumptive favorite. I was actually the underdog in that race. But I think we ran an excellent campaign. It was one based on information, based on substance, based on tackling problems. If elected, I will focus on these several major challenges in the city, public education being one, uh, public safety being the other. So I put this out on a booklet, and we tested it. And we said to the citizens, you can read this booklet in 30 minutes. And we were amazed at the number of requests. Thousands of people requested that booklet. I kind of got the reputation as being the serious candidate, the non-politician, because I had never held any political office before. Though Johnson was considered the underdog, he won. At his inauguration, he was celebrated as the first black mayor of Rochester. The Marshall Douglas Student Choir sang Hallelujah, and the Rochesterian poet Arthur Brown recited Sterling Allen Brown's Strong Men, a poem depicting the long journey since slavery. Strong Men. I take the title from the line by Carl Sandburg. The strong men keep coming on. Well, it was a great day of celebration. You know, it was really a turning point. First time in, in almost a generation that Rochester had a, a new mayor and a new kind of mayor. So we had grand series of celebrations. People were ready. Overall, Johnson's inauguration was an event of unity for the Rochester community, and people had high hopes for his period in office. In an interview with the Democrat and Chronicle, Anna Dozier, a city resident who played organs at the same church Bill Johnson attended, said, It's a historic day, and a day I will never forget. But it's not only going to be because he's a black mayor, but because he's a mayor for the people. When Bill Johnson first entered office, Rochester was stagnating. In 1993, Monroe County's crime rate was on the rise. In fact, it was the second highest in the state behind New York City. Despite the Rochester School Reform Movement of 1987, little had improved for the Rochester City Schools. During this period, dropout and suspension rates were on the rise while test scores fell. Rochester is one of those six fiscally dependent cities. So that means that each of us, New York, Albany, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and Yonkers, all have to provide a significant amount of finances to the school. Bill Johnson had many goals, but some of his main focuses included improving the city schools, erasing the city's projected $17 million debt, and creating jobs and revenue for Rochester. At the beginning of his mayoral tenure, Johnson was searching for the perfect remedy to the issues plaguing Rochester. And then, a solution sailed through the door. One day, a gentleman came to my office from Toronto named William Wilkinson. He was the reason that we ever started discussion about the fast ferry. 
he came representing wealthy interests in Canada. And he said, you know, 50, 60 years ago, there used to be a regular ferry service going back and forth between Rochester and Canada. We want to reinstitute that service. The idea of a ferry service was not new in Rochester. Back in 1907, another service traversed the Great Lake. It was called the Ontario Car Ferry Company, and it connected Rochester to the industrial Canadian city of Coburg. The two ships, Ontario 1 and 2, carried rail cars full of grain, coal, and timber over the lake, but not passenger. Passenger transit was later added as a way to increase profit, but the ferry's main purpose remained cargo transport. Both ferries ran until 1952, when coal prices increased after the Second World War and legislation mandated an increase in pay for ferry crew members, making it impossible to keep the vessels running. Ironically enough, the founder of Ontario One died on the Titanic in 1912, sinking to the bottom of the ocean along with the mighty ship. After 1952, there was no ferry connecting Rochester and Toronto. Though there had been some talk of a new fast ferry linking the two cities, no one had officially brought it to the table, fearing that it would be too expensive and difficult a project to fund. This was not the case in other parts of North America. Around the late 1990s and early 2000s, the US and Canada experienced a fast ferry boom. New York City is the most famous place where ferries run on a regular basis. Seattle has ferries that run. But there are a lot of places that were considering starting or reinstituting ferry service. There was a service on Lake Michigan. They built a smaller boat for that venture. Cities including Hartford in 96, Vancouver in 98, Honolulu in 01, Sheboygan, Wisconsin in 04, and New Brunswick, New Jersey in 05 all launched their own ferry lines. Though other cities were joining in on the fast ferry craze, Mayor Johnson's choice to champion a ferry service was bold, but also very risky. When William Wilkinson brought his idea to the table, the resurrection of the old Rochester-Toronto ferry began. To Bill Johnson, the fast ferry was one avenue to bettering Rochester and its surrounding areas in a myriad of ways. The state of New York came up with the I Love New York campaign. All right, that was, I think, in the mid-90s. And they put money behind it. So every major municipality was trying to figure out how to get a piece of that money. So they really forced us into a sort of an asset identification exercise. What are your assets? What do you have to market? How do you market your particular region? Then we began to look at the fact that on our own, we developed a number of festivals. This became a huge festival community, starting with the Lilac Festival in the spring. Then we have Park Avenue Festival. We have Corn Hill Festival. So, and then people began to fill in those things. So we said, oh, all of these become inducements to get more people to come to Rochester. Johnson dreamed of transforming the reputation of Rochester and wished to transform it into an appealing city, somewhere that people would want to visit and tour. The city was lacking easy, inexpensive transportation to and from Toronto, and a fast ferry could bring business, economic, and tourist success to the city. In the past, Charlotte had already proven itself a viable candidate for a tourist spot. In 1884, an amusement park was built on Ontario Beach by the New York Central Railroad. 
It featured three major hotels, band concerts, a garden tour, and of course, the beautiful boardwalk. In the turn of the 20th century, the port of the Shalott or the Port of Rochester used to be called the Coney Island of the West. It was a big amusement area, okay? And then it burned down and it was never restored. I've been to the port several times this summer. Most people don't consider Rochester a waterfront city. While Charlotte no longer hosted an amusement park, it was still a viable transportation hub with three major railroad lines meeting there, as well as ships transporting passengers from Canada. In Johnson's mind, the fast ferry would redevelop Charlotte, reviving the town in a way it had not seen since the days of the amusement park. The perceived benefits of the fast ferry outweighed whatever large risks may have been present. After agreeing to bring the idea forward, the only thing in his way was the taxpayers' opinions. When Johnson brought the proposal to city council, he was financially supported by Wilkinson and his successful Xerox colleague, Leo Smith. They were so supportive of the ferry idea that Wilkinson said, Investors are so confident about the project that they are predicting they will eventually need to buy a third ferry. What is going to make this a success is it's different from anything that's been tried before. Smith and Wilkinson ended up being the original investors to the project. However, when it came time to meet and bring the idea to fruition, they were nowhere to be found. Johnson looked for a plan B. So we began to explore various sources of funding to do that. And we enlisted the support of our congressional delegation. At the time, Senator Clinton, Senator Schumer, and Congresswoman Slaughter were very engaged. And Congresswoman Slaughter herself got over $15 million so we could dredge the harbor so that we could actually bring a boat in that size that could come into the Port of Rochester. So all of that activity was going on. I won't bore you with the details, but it resulted in over $150 million worth of investment that was earmarked for the Fast Ferry Project, okay? Unfortunately for Johnson, not everyone was on board. Taxpayers were unsure about investing this much money into such a high-risk expenditure. There were other projects going on, including renovating the local soccer stadium, updating the zoo, and building a new performance arts center for children. In response to these concerns, Johnson sought to reassure the public. From the business side of things, Peter Green, a ferry company spokesman, was concerned about Rochester's lack of appeal to tourists. We've drawn more Americans to Toronto than Torontonians to America, and that's what may happen in Rochester. To prove Green's point, even today, Rochester remains an unpopular attraction for Canadians. In late 2018, Air Canada canceled all flights between Toronto and Rochester, citing a lack of ticket sales. Green was not the only person wary of Canada's lack of involvement with the project. Rick Berman, a concerned Rochester resident, told the Democrat and Chronicle, I think it's a huge risk. If we had mutual encouragement and financial support from Toronto, I would be much more supportive, but I don't see that happening. Nothing is proven to take this risk. It's a huge gamble. The newness, the novelty is going to wear off in a couple of years. If we had a casino, that's a much better bet. At least that way, we would have something for people to come to. Rick Donofrio, 
51, from Brighton, voiced a similar sentiment. People have got to have a reason to come here, and residents have to benefit. We've wasted the lake all these years. Why waste money on the ferry when we can use it to fix up the waterfront? Johnson was determined to gain supporters as he continued on his journey to make the fast ferry a reality. He was able to garner lukewarm support from some big names, like U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer. This plan puts us back on track to restart the engine of the Rochester Fast Ferry, and I'm going to do all that I can to see that it succeeds. Schumer understood that Johnson's project had potential but would need a lot of work in order to succeed. Schumer understood the politics of funding and the work necessary to make big public projects happen. In the late spring of 1998, newspaper reports showed that the fast ferry had entered the public eye. At this point, there were many people who joined Johnson in support of his venture. To many, this was an opportunity for the city to gain more jobs get a financial boost, and revamp the port town of Charlotte. Johnson's pride resonated with many Rochesterians. Rochester resident John Curran, age 56, told the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, The fast ferry is an opportunity for heritage tourism to thrive on the west side of the city. It creates an opportunity for an old neighborhood to help them develop a historic district with museums and for a trolley service. It's risk-benefit, but the benefit is worth the risk. It's important to have an entrepreneurial spirit behind it. Chris Muscarella, 35, had similar thoughts. I think it's an excellent idea to have the city run the ferry. Not many ferries are run by municipalities. Once Johnson and the city council had received approval to move forward, they proceeded with the next step, finding an operator to run the port and its ferry. In 2000, Johnson and the city council issued a request to 39 companies for an operator to run the port and the two proposed ferries. Out of the 39 companies, four responded to express potential interest. The city asked these companies to write written proposals, and only one company responded. Their name was Canadian American Transportation Systems, or CATS. Despite the potential risks and controversy surrounding bringing the ferry to the table, Johnson went forward with the project in the hopes of finding a way to drastically improve Rochester and its surrounding areas. As we've heard, a look back at Johnson's origins in the city paint a less sinister picture. Johnson says Rochester is desperate for economic development. So when Dominic DeLucia and Brian Prince were the only ones who stepped up on the ferry project, the city went for it. This project, we worked on it diligently to bring it to the market to succeed. I have never been aboard a steamer. I am just content to be a dreamer. Even if I could afford a steamer, I would take the ferry boat every time. This has been Here You Are, a podcast from the Department of History at the University of Rochester. The lead researcher for this episode was Margaret Brennan. This episode was produced by Eleanor Leno and sound engineered by Ben Horn. Our narrator for this episode was Eleanor Leno. The coordinating producer for this season of Here You Are is William Gusios. The executive producers are Thomas Fleischman and Stephen Ressner. 
Music for this episode was provided by Pottington Bear and The Tonk. Johnson's Dream was composed and played by Eleanor Linnell. Our theme song, The Ferry Boat Serenade, was written by Harold Adamson, Mario Panzeri, and Eldo Di Lazaro, and arranged by Eleanor Linnell. It was performed by Elizabeth Ty, Lauren Bales, Eleanor Linnell, and Diara Bell, and engineered by Ethan Weinstein. A big thank you to Mary Bill Johnson for agreeing to be interviewed for this podcast. The production team at Here You Are would also like to thank the following people and organizations. Thank you to Michelle Finn and the Rochester Public Library for their guidance and access to newspapers and research materials. Thank you to Colleen Law and WROC Channel 8 for access to their extensive news clips. Thanks to Melissa Mead from Rare Books and Collections at the University of Rochester for her insight into proper research methods and practices. And a special thanks to Sandra Nipsel for interview advice, Sophia Tokar for social media tips, and Janelle Hart for her graphic design work. For more information on this episode, including images, additional links, transcripts, as well as the rest of season three, visit hereyouare.com. Thanks for listening.